Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Jalani Tulo and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Police in Burundi clash with anti-government protesters. South Sudan denies putting opposition leader on house arrest. And UNICEF appeals for more funds to resettle former child soldiers. In economics, Ghana blocked from drilling new oil wells in a disputed area. And in sports news, Ghana to participate in five-nation tournament in New Zealand. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has hit back at some other African nations for their criticism of the South African government over the recent wave of xenophobic attacks. He told a Freedom Day rally yesterday that everybody criticized South Africa as if it manufactured the problem. Zuma's remarks follow Nigeria's decision to recall its top diplomats from South Africa over the attacks on foreigners. He says conditions in other countries are responsible for their citizens coming to South Africa. Promotion of inter-Africa trade, regional integration, infrastructure, and other economic interventions is also designed to improve the economic situation in sister country. The end result will be that brothers and sisters will eventually no longer need to leave their countries in search of a better life. President Jacob Zuma also announced that he will submit a formal report to SADC, the AU and UN on the recent attacks on foreign nationals. He is to attend the SADC Industrialization Summit in Harare tomorrow. The summit follows on the gathering of SADC heads of state in Zimbabwe in August last year when trade ministers in the bloc were mandated to draft an industrialization strategy for the region. Members of Parliament of Lesotho's main opposition, the All-Basotho Convention, are planning to call mass stayaways. If Parliament is not opened on the 4th of May, government doesn't refrain from recalling Army Commander Tladi Kamodi and, and F Police Commissioner Khota Tsotsuana is not reinstated. However, Deputy Prime Minister Muteja Singh says a date on the 8th of May for opening Parliament has been approved by the King, but decisions made by government will not be reversed. Ndakwanagatane reports. Following the broad forward elections of February 28th, the Lesotho National Assembly set once to elect a speaker and swear in members, and the upper house, the Senate, also set to elect a president and to swear in members. The cabinet was sworn in a month ago, but since then it has been quiet. Members of parliament of the opposition Obasotho Convention ABC say they have had enough of the silence. 
South African humanitarian organization, the Gift of the Givers Foundation, has confirmed that its first rescue team is leaving for Nepal today. A number of international charities have already dispatched their teams to Nepal, where a devastating earthquake has killed more than 5,000 people. The foundation's founder, Imtia Suleiman, says the team has highly specialized rescue equipment to assist those trapped under rubble. Rioters have plunged a part of Baltimore and the U.S. into chaos, torching a pharmacy, setting police cars ablaze and throwing bricks at officers. This hours after thousands mourned a man who died while in police custody. The governor declared a state of emergency and called in the National Guard to restore order. A week-long daily curfew has also been imposed starting this evening. The riot is the latest flare-up over the mysterious death of Freddie Gray. This fatal encounter with officers came amid the national debate over police use of force, especially when black suspects are involved. Channel Africa supports the hashtags say no to xenophobia and we are one. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The leader of South Sudan's main opposition party, Lam Ajawin Akol, has accused the government of putting him under house arrest on the outskirts of the country's capital, Juba. Two of Akol's colleagues say they drove to his house, but security personnel prevented them from entering his house. But the government has vehemently denied that Akol is under house arrest. James Mangula reports. Lama Jawina Akol, leader of South Sudan People's Liberation Movement for Democratic Change, known in short as SPLMDC, says government security personnel have surrounded his house and prevented him from leaving, as well as his colleagues who had gone to visit him. Over the past 18 months, Akola has been critical of the Juba government for allocating $21 million for Independence Day celebrations in July this year. Instead, Akola wants the government to use the money to create jobs for the jobless in Africa's newest nation. In recent days, the Juba government prevented Akola from leaving the country for visits to foreign nations. The government gave no reason for its move. Speaking by telephone from his surrounded house on the outskirts of Juba, Akol said. They carry guns and they are in cars. They are in uniform. Security is for the protection of all the citizens of South Sudan. You must apply the law equally for all. Because today you may be the one applying the law. Next day you may be at the receiving end. Martina Bella Ligo, Secretary General of South Sudan's National Alliance, which brings together all opposition parties, was turned away by security personnel when he approached Akol's house as he paints this vivid picture from Juba. Sealed off the roads leading to his house. These security operatives are still there. This is a political motivated move directed against 
the leadership of the National Alliance, it is worth mentioning that the government has been climbing down on the rights of the political parties constituting the National Alliance. Leaders of the National Alliance are not allowed to travel abroad and other parts of the country. What democracy are we talking about? If the government has anything against anybody, it must follow the due process of the law. Also prevented from entering a call's house was the Stuart Oroba Budia, deputy chairman of the opposition United Democratic Party, one of several smaller parties in South Sudan. Disclosing what he saw as he approached a call's house, Budia said... These people are there. We don't know what they are there for. The next step is that we want to see to it that the government removes those people. But it could be better if the government could explain what is taking place because the security is under the government. Despite testimonies from the two opposition leaders that security personnel had surrounded Lama Jawina Cole's house and that he had been put under house arrest and that they were prevented from entering the house. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuail with denied that a call was under house arrest. I don't know if he's under house arrest. If we want to arrest him, nobody can stop us. Why should he be put under house arrest? He has his own problems and he wants to create a situation so that he feels that he's being harassed. That was South Sudan's Information Minister, Michael McQuail Webb. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. An appeal has been launched by the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, for additional funding to support the reintegration of child soldiers into communities in South Sudan. On Friday, a final group of over 280 children were released from the Cobra faction armed group in the country, bringing the total number of children released to 1,757. UNICEF says the money will also be used to support the construction of schools. Luak Nelson spoke with UNICEF's Deputy Country Representative Etty Higgins about the circumstances under which the child soldiers were released. On Friday, we were happy to announce that the final group of 283 children were released by the Cobra faction in Labrab, which is a village in Jongle. So this brings the total number of children released from the group to 1,757. When you say last, does it mean that there are no more child soldiers in the country? No, it doesn't. It just means that it's the last official release in this round of releases and reintegrations that have been organized specifically with the Cobra faction and SPLA in Pibor. But, of course, there are still many children involved with armed conflict across South Sudan, but we're appealing to all parties for their release. We see this as a significant good news for Pibor, and it's a new opportunity for the boys and one girl who were released on Friday. Only one girl. Can you just tell me the condition of the girl? How old is she and is she healthy physically and mentally? Yes, well, all the boys and the one girl who were released, they're all receiving health checks and they'll get food, shelter and psychosocial support until their families are traced and they can return home. Our initial screening of the children show that they're in relatively good health. Some of them have minor ailments that we're working on to get them treatment for. What next after this? This is the last chapter in a series of releases that have taken place since January. And now 
this is really just the beginning. The work is far from over. The children now need to be reunited with their families and they must begin a long and difficult road towards rebuilding their lives. We are appealing for funds to support the communities that the children are being reintegrated back into. So we're setting up schools where there are no schools existing. We're supporting teachers to get salaries and to rehabilitate classrooms. We're rehabilitating a lot of water points as well. And we'll have social workers going and checking on these almost 1,800 children for the next couple of months to make sure that the reintegration process back into their communities and with their families is going smoothly. Wherever we can also, for the older boys that have been released, we're supporting livelihoods. So, for example, some of the children will benefit from an apprenticeship program with a bakery in Pibor, and that is actually starting this week, and then they'll be able to set up their own little businesses in the afternoons after their classes in the morning. So the, that small business, where are they getting the initial fund? Is it from UNICEF? Some of it is from UNICEF, but it's also from other key partners such as UNIDO, who have been working hard there. And obviously, this cannot be done by UNICEF alone. It's calling for an integrated response from many partners, and this includes national NGOs, international NGOs, as well as organizations like uh, IOM, the International Organization for Migration, as well as our key partners in government. So the Ministry of Education, we're working closely with them as well to ensure that teachers are back in schools in the greater Pibor area. Could you just tell us like, how much is the initial uh, capital for these older boys to start their business? No, we're supporting their livelihoods. We're not supporting them with actual grants. We're supporting them with the skills and with the small business skills to learn a new skill and to set up perhaps like with bags of flour uh, when they're setting up the bakery as an example. We're also trying to establish other vocational training opportunities such as uh, carpentry, uh, mechanics and electrics. And that was UNICEF's Deputy Representative in South Sudan, Etty Higgins, speaking to UN Radio's Luak Nelson. Human Rights Watch have just released a report highlighting what it terms the neglected crisis of disabled persons caught up in conflict. The report centers on the conflict in the Central African Republic when 96 disabled people were abandoned and 11 others killed when the conflict broke out there in 2013. Candace Nolan reports. Human Rights Watch released a video in which people with disabilities described their struggles during the conflict. Kriti Sharma is a disability rights researcher at Human Rights Watch. People with disabilities in the Central African Republic were left out of evacuation efforts and were abandoned by families because families had very little time to rescue relatives with disabilities. The Central African Republic has been in acute crisis since early 2013 when the mostly Muslim Seleka rebels seized power in a campaign characterized by widespread killing of civilians, burning and looting of homes and other serious crimes. Local groups organized to fight against the rebels and began committing horrific reprisal attacks against Muslim civilians. Thousands of people were killed. Hundreds of thousands fled across the borders and many more were displaced inside the country, including people with disabilities. We met Hamamatu, a 13-year-old polio survivor who can't walk and who doesn't have a wheelchair. 
She told us what happened on the day her village was attacked. She told us that when the conflict began, her brother and her mother set out to flee. Her brother, Suleiman, actually came back then to try to take her with them, but she was too heavy for him to carry. She told him, Suleiman, put me down and save yourself. And he told her that he would come back for her if they didn't kill him. Unfortunately, he never came back. Two weeks later, anti-Balaka fighters found her under a tree. For two weeks, she had been without food or water exactly where her brother had abandoned her before fleeing into the bush. And when these fighters found her, they said, we have found an animal. Let's finish it off. But they let her go. She eventually made her way to the Catholic Church in Basantele, where she now lives under the care of local priests. Even if they did manage to reach the safety of the camps, many disabled persons faced fresh challenges and daily indignities. Someone who uses a wheelchair cannot even enter a toilet. He has to leave the wheelchair at the entrance of the toilet, crawl inside in terrible conditions. Although the United Nations has categorized the situation in the Central African Republic as one of the gravest by its standards, the country has not received adequate humanitarian funding. Kriti Sharma says humanitarian response must take the disabled into account. What we hope is that UN actors and other aid agencies should firstly start collecting data on people with disabilities so that they can start including them in assistance programs. Secondly, we would like aid agencies to train their staff to make sure that people with disabilities have equal access to services in the camps. And thirdly, what we think is essential, donors need to invest in disability-inclusive humanitarian efforts. Human Rights Watch called for people with disabilities to be included in the Bangui Forum, a national dialogue scheduled to take place next week. The Rights Watch body also called on the government to take steps to ensure that people with disabilities can fully participate in elections scheduled for August. That report by Candace Nolan. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibwanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. The situation in Nepal has been described as chaotic and the destruction of cultural sites as absolutely dramatic, according to the head of the UN's cultural agency UNESCO in Nepal. Christian Manhart says that many of the survivors of the 7.8 magnitude earthquake that struck the country on Saturday are forced to sleep in outdoor spaces. 
Around 60 aftershocks have shaken the ground, so he has been sleeping in his garden. Meanwhile, the death toll has risen to at least 4,300 and continues to rise. Eluetterio Giovanni spoke with Manhart and began by asking him to describe the situation around him. It's still rather chaotic here, so many roads are still blocked by rubble on the road because many of the houses and the walls fell down. The main roads are now free since uh, yesterday evening already, but uh, the communication means are still rather weak and uh, we still have a lot of smaller earthquakes. So we had 60 smaller earthquakes after the, the main earthquake, which forces us to stay outside the houses. So uh, we do not sleep in the houses, but in me personally, for example, I sleep in my garden and there are many friends also who joined me uh, who do not have a space. Uh, so we sleep outside under the rain, uh, but at least we are safe there. Uh, can you characterize the situation regarding the cultural sites after the earthquake? Yeah, the situation of the cultural sites in the Kathmandu Valley is absolutely dramatic. We have not yet finished with the evaluation uh, of all the sites, so we have now an idea about the seven World Heritage Sites in the Kathmandu Valley, where the worst destructions have the Durban Square in Kathmandu, so the Royal Square there, where almost all temples are destroyed. We have almost the same situation at Patan, Durban Square. Let's say half of the temple are destroyed. And in uh, Bhaktapur, also the situation is rather bad. So we would also say 50% of the monuments there are totally destroyed. On the site of uh, Swayambu, where we had expected that an earthquake could trigger a landslide of the very steep slope, this landslide did not take place, and uh, there were only some minor damages to uh, some of the temples around the main stupa, but the main stupa is not damaged. And uh, the same is the case for the big stupa of Baudanath, which is not damaged, only on the golden umbrella on the top of it. There is a fissure, but I think this is not major, and one of the smaller stupas seems to be damaged, but I don't have seen this myself yet. And uh, in the Hindu temples, which is the main Hindu temple for Nepal, Pashupatinath. There are some cracks at the main uh, temple, and apparently, but I haven't seen this myself yet, some of the surrounding temples are uh, destroyed. Uh, we have also one good news that the World Heritage Site of Lumbini, which is the birthplace of Lord Buddha, there is absolutely no harm, no destruction there. What type of assistance does the agency plan to give to the country in the next days? Yeah, the first thing is still to continue our evaluation. You know that uh, it is very difficult to get telephone connections, so we are lucky that we can speak now over the telephone. And also Internet is absolutely unreliable, so I had for half of the day no Internet connection uh, today. So I'm going around with the bicycle and other experts also, and we try to meet and then we exchange information. We have now decided to put all the information we have on the cultural sites together in a file which we will share and then in the next days to finish. I am also uh, in contact with our headquarters, so the World Heritage Fund has already pledged $75,000, which uh, would be for first relief for the monuments, so for the evaluation of the detailed damage and what to set up a plan, what has to be done uh, to consolidate these monuments. So this would be mainly for the World Heritage Monuments. Also, positive aspect of many temples, these stone sculptures, 
and also the wooden beams, what I have seen, are uh, relatively intact, so not too much damage. So these parts can then be used for uh, reconstruction, and also we have of all the World Heritage sites a very detailed inventory, so we have detailed photographs and we have also drawings and uh, measurements, so this will also help for reconstruction. That was Christian Manhart, head of the UN's cultural agency UNESCO in Nepal, speaking to Eluetero Giovanni. Somalia is coming together as a strong, united and federal nation despite challenges posed by the security situation, according to the special representative of the UN, Secretary General in the country. Nicholas Case says presidential and parliamentary elections scheduled in September are now at a point of no return because Somalis want to create a well-governed country. Just days after an attack on a UN convoy by Al-Shabaab terrorists, Joseph Msami spoke to Kay on the line and began by asking him for his take on the increase of terrorist threats in Somalia. Yes, I think it's true to say the last month we've seen increased activity by al-Shabaab, mostly in Mogadishu, but not exclusively. And for the first time for more than six years, we have just seen a a terrible attack on the UN and UNICEF colleagues in Garraway, in Puntland. Uh, Puntland has been traditionally a safer. Difficult to know, difficult to predict. I think al-Shabaab is under pressure. They're being pushed out of a lot of territory, but they still have the capability and they still have an intent. So they pose a threat. They pose a threat in Somalia and they pose a threat in the sub-region, particularly Kenya. Does it hinder the work of ANSOM and other UN agencies and international organizations? It is more costly to deliver. The, The overheads for security are quite significant, but they do not us, both the UN humanitarian and country team, they're there across Somalia helping the very, very vulnerable and very, very needy women, children and adults in Somalia. And the political mission is there as well. We are there helping to build a new federal democratic Somalia, helping the Somalis to build that state which they have chosen to do. Ambassador Kay, is there going to be any change in the way the UN is working in Somalia? There will be always changes as we adapt to the changing security risks. We adjust our posture and our operating procedures constantly in line with the the changing security environment across the whole of Somalia. Does the security situation prevent aid workers to reach communities in need in Somalia? There are still, unfortunately, areas of the country that uh, al-Shabaab control and where they refuse to allow international aid agencies, including the UN, to have access. They also try to block the access to, to other towns by ambushing uh, convoys, including humanitarian convoys. Uh, So this is a a daily reality and a daily problem. Uh, But despite those challenges, I would say we must recognize that Somalia is gradually coming together as a strong, united federal country, and very gradually the people's needs are being met as well. Children are going to school again 
in numbers that have not been seen since 25 years ago. Schools are opening again for the first time in 25 years. Children are being immunized against polio, against measles. And millions of them now are able to have a, a future free from the, the fear of such diseases. So Somalis are getting some of the help that they need, and I think the United Nations family, as one family, is determined to continue to help them. Ambassador Kay, does the situation threaten the ongoing political process? I believe the political process is robust and it goes beyond the point of, of no return. Uh, Somalis want to create a well-governed country where it has government close to the people and accountable to the people and that is through their process of forming a federal Somalia, federating the country and by September 2016 having an inclusive and representative process for the choice of the next parliament and next president. I think that process is well past the point of no return and whatever the challenges and whatever the risks and threats that are posed by al-Shabaab, then they are not going to deter the Somali people from enjoying that future. That was Nicholas Kay, Special Representative of the UN Secretary General in Somalia, speaking to Joseph Msami. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revive toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun, rise it. Le soleil élevé. We ya wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel, Channel Africa. Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma hits back at some other African nations for the criticism of the government over the recent wave of xenophobic attacks. The death toll in the Nepalese earthquake surpasses 5,000 and relief aid urgently needed in the Central African Republic as the country risks becoming the largest forgotten humanitarian crisis of our time. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revive toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun, rise it. Le soleil élevé. We ya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one, one people. people. 
Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Going back in time to today in 1993, a Zambian plane crashes at Libreville, Gabon, killing 18 national soccer team players. The team, better known by their nickname Chipolopolo, was destined for Dakar to play against Senegal in a World Cup qualifier. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Police yesterday fired tear gas and water cannon at protesters rallying in Burundi's capital to oppose President Pierre Nkurunziza's plan to run for a third term, a move they saw as a violation of the peace deal that ended a civil war 10 years ago. Nkurunziza's spokesperson called the protests an insurrection and said the opposition was trying to take Burundi back to 1993 when the war broke out. France-based rights group, the International Federation for Human Rights, has called upon all political actors to refrain from any action which could lead to widespread violence. The organization's deputy director of Africa Desk, Charina Gerolon, is on the line to speak to us about this. Good morning, Jarena, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Yes, that's perfect. Good morning. All right. Now, Jarena, did you anticipate yesterday's turn of events in Bujumbura? Uh, well, we have, uh, indeed, with our member organization uh, in Burundi, the League Itseka, um, raised serious concerns over the potential for an escalation into the uh, violence uh, in Burundi. Um, we have seen really over the past few months uh, serious tensions uh, rising around the possibility for um, the current president to run for a third mandate. Uh, we have seen a lot of contest, uh, in particular from the main opposition parties, from civil society organizations, uh, from the churches as well, from foreign diplomats, and even from members of the uh, ruling party who have spoken out against this, this candidacy of, of the current president, uh, which, as you said, they consider to be a violation of the provisions of the Arusha Agreement and of the Constitution. So we have really serious concerns about the potential for an escalation into uh, the, vi- the violence and the clashes between the opposition and the, and the security forces in Burundi. Now, earlier in the year, your organization interviewed a number of people who were victims of pre-election violence. Can you just touch on that for us? Yes. In in February, we organized the fact-finding mission uh, in Burundi, and we have been able to um, interview a couple of people, representatives from uh, some opposition parties and also uh, people, just members of, of opposition parties, who have described um, an environment where uh, some of them are facing with uh, acts of harassment, acts of intimidation, and sometimes violence uh, from uh, either security forces or from uh, the youth league of the party, the Imbonerakure. 
Um, we have also interviewed a couple of human rights defenders as well and journalists uh, who have been portrayed by the authorities as being part of the opposition, who have been really stigmatized by the authorities as being um, uh, ruling for the, the opposition parties. Some of them have faced with uh, judicial harassment. Uh, we have seen, for instance, yesterday the arrest of um, the well-known human rights defender Pierre Claver and Bonimpa in the morning. Um, Pierre Claver and Bonimpa has been facing over the past few months with judicial harassment from the authorities in Burundi. So we, we have really seen uh, a context where those opposing uh, the third mandate of the, of the current president being victims of uh, acts of harassment and, and uh, acts of uh, judicial harassment also. Now, have you heard any word with regards to the protesters, the 105 protesters who were arrested last week, um, you know, and uh, charged with participating in insurrectionary movement? What is that exactly, and what's the situation with regards to those people who were arrested? Well, um, as you were saying, there have been uh, various clashes uh, in the streets of uh, Bujumbura. People, right after the Congress of the CNDDFDD, have tried to express uh, their uh, concerns and, and, and their opposition to, to its candidacy in, in the streets. Um, and these protests have led to serious clashes with the um, with the security forces, what we have been saying is that the authorities really need to guarantee fundamental rights and freedoms. And among those fundamental rights and freedoms, there is the right to peaceful assembly, the right to freedom of expression, and the right to uh, information as well. And what we have seen over the past two days uh, is the clear violations of those liberties. You've called for, you've called on authorities on the ground there to um, take the necessary measures to put an end, an immediate end to what's currently happening on the ground. Is this likely to happen? We we clearly reiterate our call for the authorities to happen. Of course, we are somehow somehow pessimistic, uh, but the authorities really need to understand that. Uh, uh, this is their responsibility to ensure um, the security of uh, the citizens in Burundi and to ensure, as we were saying, that the, the fundamental rights and freedoms of the people in Burundi are uh, respected. Uh, we have seen really um, very um, um, bad moves from the authorities over the past two days, including the attempt to uh, seriously restrict freedom of expression. Uh, the main radio, independent radio uh, in the country are uh, prevented from operating freely, uh, and in particular in the provinces uh, of the country. Uh, so we really call upon the authorities to ensure that journalists, independent journalists, can operate freely in the country. Uh, we call upon the uh, release, uh, immediate release of Pierre Claver and Bonimpa, and, and we call upon the authorities once again to uh, ensure that uh, those who are peacefully protesting uh, can do it uh, freely. 
Now, finally, with regards to President Gurunzinza, is it likely that he may not run for these elections or his decision is final and he is wanting to go for a third term, which is the seem, which seems to be the problem of contention on the ground? Well, the, the, the signs, the political signs that we have seen from the ruling party seem to be uh, clear. Uh, despite the contest and, and, and despite the criticisms, um, including from some uh, representatives within the international community, uh, we have seen really a ruling party uh, willing full to uh, support the candidacy of Pierre Nkohonziza. Now the situation is, um, of course, very centered uh, toward his um, uh, candidacy, but I would say that the situation... Uh, now is also um, uh, focused on the actual capacity of Burundian citizens to go freely uh, to the polls. That's the main concern for us now, to try to ensure that the upcoming elections will be free, fair and transparent and secure for the Burundian uh, citizens. And the events that have been taking place over the past two days rise serious concerns over the capacity of citizens in this country uh, to go and vote uh, in free, fair and transparent elections. Cherina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Cherina Gerolon, Deputy Director of the International Federation for Human Rights Africa Desk, joining us from France. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has deplored attacks by Israel on UN premises, among them UN Relief and Works Agency-run schools during the 2014 Gaza war. In a cover letter accompanying a summary of a long-anticipated UN Board of Inquiry report, the Secretary-General slammed the actions that left at least 44 Palestinians dead with over 200 injured. He also expressed dismay that Palestinian militant groups used three UN schools to shelter their weapons, although those premises were not being used as emergency shelters at the time. Sean Bryce Peace reports. Despair in the city of Jabalia in Gaza after Israeli attacks on this UN shelter last year. This specific attack killed 20 Palestinians sheltering there, injuring dozens. The Secretary-General's deputy spokesperson, Farhan Haq. In his cover letter, the Secretary-General says the following, that UN premises are inviolable and should be places of safety, particularly in a situation of armed conflict. It's a matter of the utmost gravity that those who, were looked, those who looked to them for protection and who sought and were granted shelter there had their hopes and trust denied. I will work with all concerned and spare no effort to ensure that such incidents will never be repeated. In his letter accompanying a summary of the report, the UN chief also accused Palestinian militant groups of putting UN schools in Gaza at risk, although weapons were found at three schools separate from the seven hit by Israeli strikes. Over 2,000 Palestinians, mainly civilians, were killed during the 50-day war over July and August last year. There is a difference between uh, the three schools where weapons were found and the seven other sites that were attacked. Um, Along those uh, lines, 
regarding the seven incidents in which death or injuries occurred at or damage was done to UN premises, the Secretary General in his, in his cover letter uh, did deplore the fact that at least 44 Palestinians were killed as a result of Israeli actions and at least 227 injured at UN premises being used at, at emergency shelters. The UN Secretariat declined to comment on referring the matter to the International Criminal Court, a matter that could technically be referred by the Security Council or taken up by the court itself, given Palestine's membership. The ICC launched an inquiry in January into possible war crimes committed during the war. It's not our business uh, to determine what, uh, what cases the International Criminal Court takes up. You'd have to take that up with them. The inquiry was led by former Dutch military officer Patrick Kamert, while Israel's foreign ministry issued a statement saying all incidents attributed by the report to Israel are already the subject of thorough examinations and criminal investigations where relevant. The Security Council could take up the matter as early as Tuesday. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Malawians have vowed to continue their peaceful protests outside shops that South Africans own in Malawi every Friday for a month. They are demanding the immediate closure of shops following the recent xenophobic attacks in South Africa. Malawians are calling on African countries to unite against the attacks. George Mhango reports from Blantyre, Malawi. There wasn't anybody else injured. Nobody was killed. Armed police were almost everywhere at shop right game stores, pet stores, and each and every shop that belongs to a South African. But it was a peaceful demonstration, which to Consumers Association of Malawi Executive Director Johnny Capito says it was a success. They are not asking for the South African shops to be closed down for good, just like a temporal thing. Meanwhile, local and Somali business forums in South Africa celebrated the country's Freedom Day yesterday by seeking solutions to prevent xenophobic attacks from spreading in the northwest town of Rustenburg. A structure including Somali shop owners, members of different political parties and civic organizations have been set up to lead dialogue about xenophobia and pan-Africanism in Rustenburg. This takes place against the backdrop of the recent spate of xenophobic attacks in different parts of South Africa. Is from the Emang Basadi Advocacy Group. We want to be proactive so that if there's anything that may come, we must, we must know how to tackle it. The fact that we have called different organizations here and they are saying their frustrations, the challenges that they are having, we will take them up with our authorities and rust them back so that we can address them before the community starts fighting with our foreign nationals. The Somali nationals held the gathering. Somali business owners, Ibrahim Mohammed. We all Somalians, we are very happy about it. And with, with everything, with financial, with effort, with everything, we are ready. And we just spread this one to, to, to the other communities, not only Somalian communities, we just spread to the other nationalities like Ethiopians. We engage them. 
South Africa's Premier of the Western Cape Province, Helen Zille, and Minister of Economic Opportunities, Alan Wind, are leading a delegation to Angola to strengthen trade and investment between the region and the province. The Western Cape government has been driving expansion into Africa for the past few years. Key on the agenda will be enhancing collaboration between the regions in Project Kulisa's strategic sectors such as tourism, oil and gas, and agri-processing. This is expected to unlock growth and job creation potential in both regions. The value of South Africa's Western Cape exports to Angola was valued at over $165 million in 2013. Energy explorer Tulo says it is unaffected by an international tribunal ordering Ghana not to carry out any new oil drilling activities in disputed waters with neighboring Côte d'Ivoire. The London-based multinational says development work on the 10 project continues. The project is now over 55% complete, with all 10 of the wells expected to be online at first oil already drilled. The first barrels are expected mid-next year. The international tribunal for the law of sea in Hamburg, Germany on Saturday ordered Ghana to stop new oil projects until a final resolution on the disagreement was reached. Côte d'Ivoire had wanted the suspension of all ongoing oil exploration and exploitation by Ghana. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 12.07 South African rands, at 9.76 Botswana Pula, and at 7.37 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.65 to the British pound and at 0.92 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,202 and platinum at $1,148 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $64.64 a barrel. Channel Africa supports the hashtags Say No to Xenophobia and We Are One. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with football news, Ghana will play three games at a five-nation invitational tournament in New Zealand ahead of the 2015 Under-20 World Cup. Ghana will be joined by Australia, New Zealand, Qatar and Panama at the 10-day mini-tournament beginning this Sunday. According to sources, 2022 World Cup host Qatar, whose current Under-20 team are expected to form the basis of the senior team when they host the tournament, are sponsoring Ghana, Australia and Panama's participation at the mini-tournament tournament in Auckland and Hamilton. The black satellites are expected to leave Ghana on Wednesday and will need about two days to arrive in New Zealand. Ghana will play Qatar in their first match on Monday. They will then play New Zealand's Invitational 11 team at the Wakato Stadium in Hamilton on the 10th of May before rounding off against Australia at the same venue three days later. For acclimatization for acclim- acclimatization purposes Ghana could remain in Auckland for a two week training camp or move to Melbourne in neighbouring Australia after the mini tournament from the 15th to the 29th of May. Black Satellites will open the 2015 FIFA World Cup campaign against Australia on the 30th of May. They will then play Argentina and Panama to complete their Group B games. 
Sound Football News FIFA President Sir Blatter was among the dignitaries that sent messages of condolences to the family of former South Africa's Bafana Bafana player John Shoes Moshewu during his funeral service at the Grace Marble Church in Soweto on Monday. In a statement, Blatter says FIFA is saddened by the death of Moshewu, who played in the 1996 AFCON tournament. Former Nigerian captain JJ Okocha, who played with Moshewu at Fanabache, has also sent a message of condolences to his family of the late footballer. Okacha has described Moshewu as a perfect gentleman. There were also messages from the Continental Soccer Governing Body, CAF. Moshewu was buried at West Park Cemetery, north of Johannesburg, on Monday afternoon. On to cricket news, Zimbabwe are close to accepting an invitation to play in Pakistan next month in a one-day international series that could mark the first visit by a test-playing nation since 2009. Zimbabwe are keen to undertake the tour but still need to settle financial guarantees and a memoranda of agreement is yet to be signed. Zimbabwean media reported that players are seeking as much as $10,000 per man to tour Pakistan where security concerns have stopped international teams from touring since March 2009 when Sri Lankan cricket and officials were attacked by gunmen in Lahore. Foreign teams have shunned Pakistan since the attack in which six Pakistani policemen were killed, meaning they have not played, their, the, rather they have played their home matches and, and neutral, at neutral venues, mostly in the United Arab Emirates. South Africa's top bullshit racer Ernst van Dijk finished in fifth position at the London Marathon on Sunday. In the past, the South African has always managed a podium finish, aiming for his first victory in the English capital just six days after his second place at the Boston Marathon. The 42-year-old veteran was involved in a three-man tangle off the back of the lead pack, but managed to stay up and finish his race. This is what he had to say after his race. Yeah, you know, we were. I think there was about seven of us in the group in the end that kept on changing the lead. And I, I thought I had a good position coming into the, the finish. But I know from experience you need to take that last corner at least in first or second place to do well in this race. And um, I came through and I got clipped by another guy. And I lost about three chairs. And then I was out of that corner in fourth. And I figured I could still get back to bronze. And it was going really well. And then... We just ran out of road. There was too many of us, and a three-meter finish line is just too narrow for, for this level. And finally, tennis news. World number one Novak Djokovic of Serbia continues to lead the men's world tennis ranking released uh, by the ATP on Monday. The only movement in the top ten sees Sanselaz Wawrinka of Switzerland up a place to ninth, while Croatia's Marin Klilic down to tenth place. Serbia's Djokovic remains on 13,000. 845 points, ahead of Switzerland's Roger Federer on 8,385 points, and Britain's Andy Murray on 6,060 points. That is your sports news at the Sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Police in Burundi clash with anti-government protesters. South Sudan denies putting opposition leader in house arrest. And UNICEF appeals for more funds to resettle former child soldiers. 
That wraps up Africa Raz and Shan today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Selina Dobong, technical producer Revelina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Wali Badaru and Friends with a track titled So.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up.